there was a question from uh, Ross. Already he mentioned some things at noon. Ross is asking, in the uh, Hindu system, Ashtanga, Yoga, or Advaita Vedanta, they often talk about uh, bliss and joy and uh, rapture as the highest aim. They often describe the ultimate state and what they are aiming for and the subject on and the being consciousness bliss is one possible translation for that the being consciousness bliss you know, or true existence mind rapture or something like that yes you know, the Buddha talks so much about uh, Dukkha and Four Noble Truths and uh, what is the reason for that so the, the first thing that comes to mind to me is you know, that I think the way uh, the Dhamma is presented in our modern society, there's maybe almost too much an emphasis on the vulnerable truth and Dukkha, particularly in the beginning. And the Buddha actually does talk as well a lot about bliss and rapture. We have a very nice tool nowadays on the computer. One can use the digital party reader. There's also a version for Android from Benevolio Dhamma, an excellent work. I've made that uh, available both on Android and on laptop. And you can just search, and I did that before this session, so I put in Sukha, which is happiness or bliss. And uh, just for the Sutta and Vinaya, so not including Abhidhamma or any commentaries or later scriptures, just the early Nikayas, Sutta and Vinaya Vitaka, was about a thousand occurrences about Sukha, happiness, bliss. And that doesn't even include if you have a Sukhi or Sukho, that wouldn't be included, there will be even more. And I put in uh, piti, the Pali word for rapture. And that had, I think, 370 occurrences. And the Pamodra, which you may want to translate now as gladness or joy, that still had more than 100. So the Buddha does talk a lot about happiness, bliss, rapture. But the first thing is now that he clearly distinguishes between the spiritual happiness, niramisa sukha, spiritual happiness, or sometimes also called nakama sita sukha, um, happiness based on letting go, based on renunciation. And he very sharply distinguishes that from happiness which is based on sensuality, eating, drinking, dancing, and other central activities that people like to engage in, that is all essential happiness. Watching music videos on YouTube, watching a fascinating love movie or playing war games, and if you come into video games about war, Assassin's Creed, whatever you may be playing there, this is even not so much sensuality, and this is what the Buddha would call an unwholesome states, unwholesome phenomena. But some people may also have joy and happiness when they 
in that video game are killing others, and the more they kill, the more happiness they have. But this is not the happiness of Buddha recommends. It's the happiness the Buddha says we should shun and avoid and never develop. But if we in a clearly with mindfulness distinguish the two, and if we recognize that this happiness is utterly based on letting go and renunciation, utterly based on spiritual, non-central, not unwholesome phenomena, then it's a good one and we should develop it. And I think that factor can sometimes be underrepresented. And then a wrong impression may be created that Buddhism is all about suffering. <laughs> I think one problem in Western society is also that um, Buddhism was first kind of introduced more from a scholastic side, from scholars. So they studied it and they have presented it, but they hadn't really attained freedom from suffering. If you have the good fortune of actually meeting any of the great Kobajans, the great Abahans, who truly have you know, realized the Dhamma in their heart, and they may talk quite a bit about Dukkha, and Ajahn Shana even talked about Natoaman tormenting others. And he said his, his meditation, which he's teaching, is the torment, torment or torture. But you see, when Ajahn Chah is saying that, you can see you know, that he has got this tremendous happiness and joy in his heart, even if he talks about tormenting and torturing others. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, of course. But what you uh, can sense in his heart is actually this freedom from suffering, this, this tremendous joy and also equanimity, and this tremendous matter. So I think you know, if, if you have a great uh, Arahant presenting the Dhamma, even if they talk about the Asuba subjects, you know, recollecting, uh, decomposing corpses, recollecting you know, the 32 disgusting aspects of the body, and the blood and pus and bones and so on, at the same time, because that person has had the supreme happiness of Nibbana in their heart, one doesn't misunderstand it as a teaching which is uh, pessimistic and only focused on, on pain and suffering. We also have to keep in mind that the Four Noble Truths include the Third Noble Truth as well, which is the end of suffering. And the end of suffering is obviously in a form which you can call in a form of happiness. So the Buddha may have talked uh, much more about happiness, rapture, and bliss in Samadhi than uh, the way the Dhamma is sometimes presented. This is why it's so good to go back to what the Buddha himself actually taught. And then I did that and just searching the authentic teaching of the Buddha, the early Nikayas, as I mentioned, there's so many references about gladness, rapture, happiness. Another issue is that in Pali, things are often expressed in the negative. So, for example, the Pali term avipati sada, freedom from remorse, 
Now, this is some reside the Buddha described, which comes from being virtuous, from keeping precepts. As someone who is keeping precepts, they will experience avipa desire, freedom from remorse. And partly it's even just simply in a non-remorse. And if a modern person hears non-remorse, it doesn't sound exactly mind-blowing. <laughs> it sounds okay, but why would I then do something as difficult as keeping all these precepts for non-remorse? But if you actually do experience non-remorse from keeping precepts diligently for a long time, you will notice that this is a very positive, very strong happiness. It's something incredible, satisfactory and fulfilling. as something much better than dancing away a whole night on a rave party. It may also feel good, but non-remorse feels even better. If you live in a society where everything is no profit and sold in terms of marketing and advertising with these extreme terms. And if you if you drink a tinny of Coca-Cola, this will be the supreme happiness or whatever they express. So we have become used to this high language. But the Buddha has got the supreme equanimity and has got no desire nor even to convert people who is just operating from compassion and equanimity. He's not using this hyped-up language. Once we understand that and we look at these terms and we recognize that there's so much happiness, rapture and bliss, the Buddha talked about, which is available to us. Now, Anavatra Sukha, blameless happiness, another term for the happiness we get from being virtuous. But again, for our ears, it may not sound mind-blowing, the blameless happiness. Once we feel that, mind you, this is not necessarily when you start on the five precepts or the eight. As someone who has poor precepts, maybe drinking quite a bit of alcohol and other problems, issues, and when they go clean, and sober up and keep the precepts. They will not be flooded with joy and happiness immediately. It may be quite tough. And so sometimes you may have to sacrifice some short-term inferior happiness for a long-term superior happiness. And we have to give it some time. But someone who has been well established in precepts, keeping them very pure for, say, a whole decade, and when they tune in into that, there's an incredible, strong, satisfactory feeling. It's a very strong, fulfilling happiness, much better than the essential indulgences. And we have to understand that when we come across terms like blameless happiness, like freedom from remorse, like an unsullied happiness from sense of strength. But a crucial difference to the Hindu system, which is positing that as the ultimate aim. For the Buddha, this is all 
tools. This is all part of the practice of reaching the ultimate aim. And so the happiness we develop is not the final goal. It's not the ultimate objective. Because any form of happiness, rapture, blissness is a feeling, is a Vedana. And ultimately, the Vedana is impermanent. It would be impossible to ever feel eternal bliss. Because bliss is a form of Vedana, a form of feeling. And any feeling is conditioned, and what is conditioned will be impermanent. It cannot last forever. It will be over one day. So if the Buddha posited the bliss and rapture as the ultimate aim we are practicing for, then it would be still something impermanent. It would be still something that ultimately can't give us satisfaction because it will vanish when the conditions which created it are exhausted and over and have come to an end themselves. And the result and also the bliss comes to an end. So that is a difference. The Satchitananda is the ultimate aim. For the Buddha, the rapture and bliss is part of the path. It's not the goal, it's part of the path to get to the goal. We develop it to get to ultimately in the Vedana Nirodha and the letting go of all attachment and identification with any form of feeling. That is one difference. Some of these terms in Satchit Ananda from the Dhamma perspective are very dubious anyhow. I mean, bliss, okay, but impermanent. The feeling is impermanent. Feeling is not me, not mine. And if we identify with that, then we would still be trapped in personality view. We would be trapped in the delusion of I, mine, and self. The similar with the Sat being the bothers similar to that, the being becoming existence, and the Buddha points that out as a cause of suffering. But I mean, we no need to go too much into that. But one crucial difference is, for us, the way the Buddha taught Dhamma, uh, he mentioned a lot of happiness. He encouraged us a lot to develop wholesome bliss and rapture. But... It is part of the path, it's not the goal. Because it couldn't be the goal, it's still impermanent, any feeling will not last. Another reason, if you look at the Four Noble Truths, that uh, it is, in my opinion, correct that the Buddha would talk more about the First Noble Truth than about the Third. The Third Noble Truth is the end of suffering, and the Buddha then gave the duty attached to that truth, which is to realize it, <laughs> to experience it. The duty is not to talk about it, because you can't really talk about the unconditioned. You can use some terms, some pointer the Buddha gave us, the even highest happiness, one of these pointers, but it's a happiness without feeling. Never was puzzling me even for... One of the monks, and he asked the Buddha, how, how, can, how, can, uh, how can there be the highest happiness if there is no feeling in Nibbana? 
And the answer is exactly that. Is the happiness that there is no feeling. So it's a little bit of paradox, and it's difficult to imagine that if one hasn't realized it, what is meant by that, that the highest happiness is not to have a feeling. So it's very difficult to talk about Nibbana. We can use some of the pointers, the deathless element, the unconditioned, the shelter, the refuge, the marvelous, the amazing, what I gave us these pointers, but it's somewhat limited what we can talk about it. It's much easier to talk about Dukkha because that is on this side of the ocean of Sangsara, where we are, we live in the conditioned world, we want to get out of that. And one of the similes for the practice is crossing over to the other shore, and to the parang, to the beyond, parayana, and going to the further shore, where there's this big river, and now we want to cross. And in order to cross, we need a raft, that we can paddle across, supported by a raft. That's a famous simile the Buddha gave. And the raftness, the Dhamma he gave us. Now, so imagine that you are on this on this shore, in the realm of suffering and conditioned phenomena, and now you want to go across with the help of a raft to the other shore, the beyond, which is Nibbana, the unconditioned, the freedom from suffering the highest happiness, which is the happiness where there is no feeling. Now, now you start working on doing that. Where do you get the materials to build the, the raft? And it's on this shore. You can't reach to the other shore yet, and so you have to build the materials to get there. On this side, now, there's a conditioned phenomena. And this is why the Buddha talked so much about that. We have to work with this body of ours, which is a conditioned phenomenon, which is a part of Dukkha. We have to work with these emotions and feelings, and Vedana and Vitaka and thoughts we experience, which is all a part of the truth of Dukkha, because this is all we know until we have experienced Nibbana. And this is what we have to work with. Now, this is one other reason that the Buddha has a little bit of emphasis on, on Dukkha, because you know, everything on this side of the river, on this shore you know, of Sangsara, is by nature you know, conditioned and impermanent and connected with Dukkha. But that's all we have. And so the Buddha has to talk about it. But there is also the third noble truth, and uh, it is stated. And uh, again, if we are fortunate that we have met some of the great liberated beings, no other one can't talk so much about the third noble truth. It has to be realized, but if you experience them, you get a whiff, you get an idea what the third noble truth actually means. It's difficult to describe it, but if, if those who have been fortunate to meet someone like Ajahn Chah, and those who have been fortunate to meet someone like 
just from developing matter even below the level of samadhi. There's heaps of wholesome spiritual happiness and rapture and joy for us, for the taking. And it's encouraged by the Buddha. And I think it has been a bit neglected in maybe a more scholarly presentation in the West of the Dhamma. And maybe also in some traditions which focus on Vipassana via exclusion of Samadhi. So it's good to reinstate that and to remember that this is part of the path. But very important that this is not the final aim. This is not what we ultimately practice for. Because any form of bliss and happiness is in the realm of sankara, in the realm of impermanence. It is a Vedana. And Vedana is also the cause for tanna, and it's the cause for craving. Feeling is a cause for craving, and it's part for perpetuating the circle of sankara. Now, any Vedana is conditioned. There must have been a sense contact in one of the six senses to experience any kind of feeling. And even the, the bliss in samadhi is the condition from a sense contact of the mind. There's still another difference because even when we come to samadhi, the Buddha goes beyond rapture and bliss to equanimity. And most people can't imagine that equanimity is even better than bliss. <laughs> because most people know only the equanimity of the, uh, the foolish, worldly person who has not gone beyond the limitations as a kind of... Um, equanimity connected with delusion and ignorance. And what Ajahn Shah called the equanimity of the water buffalo. The water buffaloes can be quite equanimous, particularly as long as they have some straw to chew and some water to stand in. They can just stand there and chew and be very equanimous. So because most people can only imagine this equanimity on that low level, they can't imagine there's an equanimity above rapture and bliss, which feels even better. You know, the fourth jhana, you know, the higher immaterial, peaceful liberations. You know, already from that aspect, you know, the Buddha would never propose a state of rapture and bliss you know, as a final aim, because already the most refined samadhi is now beyond that and are only connected with equanimity and the, the mental feeling of neither pain nor pleasure, which is uh, superior even to bliss. And then, of course, also the result of fully comprehending the Four Noble Tools and abandoning all attachment and identification. And having the heart liberated, that means that they have that total equanimity in all six sense spaces, which is again superior to any bliss. No longer based on samadhi, now based on insight and full liberation of the heart. Understanding and having understood and having realized every phenomenon that is conditioned 
as impermanent, as not self, and having let go of that. Now the other hand, they will always have that supreme equanimity within, which is beyond any kind of bliss. Another reason why the Buddha wouldn't uh, posit that as the ultimate. I think that is the comments I have on was questions. So please go for rapture and bliss as long as it's wholesome, spiritual rapture and bliss, as long as it's based on renunciation and letting go and not sensual or unwholesome. But don't mistake it no further for the final aim that is part of the path. It's an important factor, particularly for the development of samadhi. That's not the final aim, but it leads us into samadhi. But already in the area of samadhi, there is the equanimity which is even superior to bliss. And once one has the samadhi, and there's a good vantage point to really look at dukkha. But there's also a purpose in that, we're looking at dukkha in order to let go of it understand it, to comprehend it, so that the heart can let go of Dukkha and realize the third noble truth, and the freedom from Dukkha. There's a question from Malika. Ajahn, today you mentioned about hindrances at Q&A. How do we learn to work with the first two hindrances skillfully so that we can strengthen our awareness of them? The first two hindrances are the sensuality, sensual desire, karma chanta, we are part of I think we're a little bit too long into the talk because after two hours, this podcast automatically will cut out. I can't really go much deeply into that. But connecting it with this talk, the use wholesome happiness and rapture and bliss. Once you get wholesome rapture and happiness and bliss going, is the best way of uh, abandoning sensuality. Sensuality is very sticky, and even if we understand that it leads us into trouble and has got the drawbacks, it's just so sticky because it feels nice. And the easiest way of getting out of sensuality is to have some better happiness, which is not sensual. So one suggestion today to you, Malika, for overcoming the first hindrance of sensual desire, develop non-sensual happiness, which is even better than what you get out of sensual desire. And then the mind finds it quite easy to go for that because it has got something better. And that is the, the revolutionary approach the Buddha had taken. That we don't need to have uh, torturing ourselves, we don't have to have pain to attain happiness. But we can uh, use happiness, but there has to be the spiritual wholesome one. And the same holds for ill will. As someone who is blissed out of their brains, they're not going to get grumpy at other people. <laughs> if you come out and say of second jhana, that term, please, 
And even if someone walks up to you and spits you right into the face right at the time of coronavirus, you would find it difficult to get grumpy. The happiness is so profound when people get samadhi. The, the ill will just doesn't come up. We all know that and if you already feel unhappy and feel in pain, it's so easy to get grumpy and angry. Someone who's on a diet with a headache, of course I easily get grumpy. If you're blissed out of your skull, you, you will not get angry easily. I can say many more things on the hindrances on the first two the biggest ones. But to connect it with today's talks, I would just suggest to develop as much spiritual rapture and bliss as possible. And then the mind doesn't depend on sensuality. We want happiness from sensuality. And as long as the mind has no better happiness, it will, it will always have this tendency. It takes so much work and so much careful contemplation to prevent the mind from going to sensuality because the mind just is so addicted and needs this happiness. But if you can offer the mind an even better happiness, that becomes quite easy. And once the hardness suffused with happiness, the anger just usually doesn't even arise. Thank you, Ajahn. I will try my best. Yeah. Of course, now I'm not claiming that I can, can do it or what I'm saying here. <laughs> But as far as I can understand, is in line with the teaching of the Buddha. And of course, I also cannot just easily bliss out any moment. But and it's definitely the path we should be following. And even if we can't fully bliss out, even just a little bit of wholesome spiritual joy and gladness is already a great gain and very enjoyable. So we all try our best, Monica. I will try my best as well. <laughs> and now we can uh, share merits with all beings. Another way of generating you know, wholesome spiritual joy, whatever goodness we have done, we share it with others, and we feel even more happy.